What's up, everyone? Welcome back to National Board Conversations. In this episode, we kick off our I Am an NBCT campaign, showcasing the diverse faces of NBCTs across the country. And at the end of this episode, I will give you instructions on how you can participate in the campaign. But in a minute, you'll have the chance to listen to my conversation with the brilliant Kimberly Jones. She is a National Board Certified Teacher who believes deeply in culturally responsive lessons and was recently named the 2023 North Carolina Teacher of the Year. I can go on and on and on about her. She calls in from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I won't keep you any longer. Here's my conversation with Kimberly Jones. Kimberly Jones, thank you for joining me. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Eddie. Oh, yeah. No, this is something we're looking forward to, something I've been looking forward to. My co my colleague, Stacey Hicks, has said that people in North Carolina rave about you, so they, they've gotten me excited to talk to you. So we'll get started. Awesome. Uh, what is your current role? And give a little brief intro of yourself. Awesome. I am the 2023 Burroughs Welcome Fund North Carolina Teacher of the Year. Currently, I'm in my 17th year teaching uh, English with a focus on world literature at Chapel Hill High School. Um, here at Chapel Hill, I also serve as the co-coordinator for the AVID program and work in my district on lots of different instructional and equity-based leadership opportunities. And um, Chapel Hill is in the Chapel Hill Carver City School Districts in North Carolina. Okay, okay, we like it. So we're gonna get a little bit to know you a little bit on the personal side. So what are your three favorite foods? Um, hands down, pot roast. <laughs> any kind of sweet potato, um, candied, baked, any kind of sweet potato, and probably spinach. I'll, I'll just make it a meal. So I'll go pot roast, cream spinach, sweet potatoes. Like a healthy person. Uh, <laughs> I mean, most likely those those sweet potatoes are going to be candied and that spinach is going to be creamed and <laughs> there's going to be lots of gravy on the pot roast. But thanks, I will, I'll take that back to my, I'll take that back to my doctor. I'm like, well, anything, uh, so, I have a very healthy diet. <laughs> so I don't know if you've ever been to Dallas. There's this barbecue place called Pecan Lodge, right? And they have yeah. this sweet potato. It's like a loaded sweet potato with brisket. And everything you get in a loaded potato, listen, it is everything. So if you ever go to Dallas, heck yeah, <laughs> like get you one of them. It is heck delicious. Yeah. All right. So what are three songs that define you? Um, I will go Optimistic by Sounds of Blackness, um, Smiling Face by James Taylor, and Higher Love by Steve Winwood, but the Whitney Houston cover. Okay, okay, I like it. I like it. I like a little versatility in there. <laughs> just, just a little bit, just a little bit. All right, and the one sports team that has your heart, and if you're not a sports person, who's your favorite movie, TV, or book character of all time? Gonna go alma mater, Wake Forest, Demon Deacon. Oh, Wake Forest, all okay. All day. <laughs> my uh, my friend, my friend uh, who now works for the Sacramento Kings, used to do the social media and stuff for the Wake Forest uh, sports teams for a few years. <laughs> <laughs> look at that look at that black and gold everywhere I love yeah it. like he, he still loves wake forest like he's still all about it even though he went to school with me at west virginia now like, real talk <laughs> like wake forest is so small when you see somebody wearing a wake forest t-shirt you're like you had to go there like <laughs> we don't just pick up fans at random but once but once you're in the family you you bleed black and gold for life so yeah awesome. and like you could like look last year's college football team or a couple of years ago yes like, 
Like every like they they just showed out. Like everybody was just showing out. I when I was in grad school, we went to the Orange Bowl, and it was you know how like the commentators talk during the game. I will never forget. They were either coming back from commercial or throwing it out to commercial, but they were like, "Tonight, um, there are this many Wake Forest fans." Um, odd fact: if you took every person who ever graduated from Wake Forest. And you put them in this stadium, it will not fill the stadium. <laughs> but we're here though. That's but it. We're here. That's it. But we made it. Like exactly. <laughs> I love it. Small and mighty. So can you share why you became a teacher and why you remain in the classroom? Absolutely. Um I, according to my mom, have been teaching forever. I've always loved learning. Um, and by the time that I was in high school. I knew that I was interested in teaching, but I also wanted to make money. And I did not think that would happen in the classroom. So I guess I fought against my my interest in my calling. But I went to the North Carolina Governor School Program when I was a junior in uh, high school. And it took me out of my small town and it exposed me to a version of learning and a curriculum that I hadn't had access to previously. I was in a really diverse learning community. Uh, Governor School was when I met my first vegetarian. I met <laughs> the first person who did not share my religious background. And I saw like the beauty in diverse perspectives. I had teachers from all kinds of walks of life. And I just feel like that was the first time that I saw the true power of educators, not only to help you grow your skills, but to like sharpen and hone your perspective on the world. And I wanted to be a part of that. So after that summer at governor school, I actually started looking into what would it look like to major in education? Where would I want to teach? And by the time I finished with my undergrad degree at Wake, I had decided, yeah, I want to, I want to do uh, I want to be an educator. And so I got my graduate degree at Wake from the uh, Wake Forest Master Teaching Fellows Program. And I got the chance to study under uh, incredible educational leaders and pedagogues. And um, it was the best choice I've ever made, hands down. Man. And I think that's what keeps me there, the the opportunity to be that for another person, for for a, a teenager to to show them a vision of the world or maybe even a vision of themselves that they hadn't considered previously and to watch their personal potential kind of unlock. That's what that's what keeps me coming back. That's awesome. I love seeing those light bulb moments in people when they finally get something. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what push you to pursue national board certification? Um, so do you want my like philosophical answer? Uh, listen, or... give me all the answers. We give oh, me all the answers. You got. We want the real, real. Um, so a couple of things. Number one, in North Carolina, I'm very fortunate to live in a state that values um the national board uh process and what it what it leads teachers to think and do. Um, and they show that value through a statewide supplement. So as a beginning teacher, I think I did it the first year I was eligible. Um, because I had student loans to pay off. <laughs> but I also, I also, at the time, our state provided tuition assistance to complete the program. And I was in a school full of highly qualified teachers, many of whom had already gotten their national boards. And 
were constantly encouraging me to do it. When they saw that I was already invested in school change and in school leadership, when they saw that I was already taking part in some of the data dives and reflective pedagogy, they were like, Kim, you are doing the work. Do this process, um, you know, be, be paid for it, be supported in doing it, and you will come out better and stronger and with this amazing qualification. And I'm so glad that I listened. And that was at this point, um, gosh, 12 <laughs> years ago, something like that. Oh man. So it's been so you've been in education for a little bit. So like, but no, that's something we try to do to message to a lot of folks who get involved in the process. Like a lot of the times you're already doing a lot of the work. Yes. Absolutely. And it's just about documenting it now and making sure you get paid for it, like you. That part. That part. You, if you're doing the work, be compensated for it. If you're doing the work, um, and it's also for me, it helped me to see a lot of things that I was doing and wasn't necessarily categorizing correctly or necessarily giving myself credit for. Um, but when I got into the board's process and I started doing some of the reflection work and the reflective work on my practice, it made me more thoughtful about the choices that I was making moving forward. That's awesome. So what was your journey like? Did you achieve on your first try? I did. I did. I was very, very fortunate, again, to have a team of, uh, of fellow teachers who were willing to read entries and give feedback and just general encouragement when you're feeling a little stressed out or it's feeling a little overwhelming. And the first time I did it was, I mean, it was old school. So I got the box, <laughs> got the with box. The labels <laughs> and the homie, you would have thought I was handing over the Holy Grail. Like <laughs> me and the UPS man, we had a very long conversation about how important this box like, was. Don't lose this box. <laughs> like my whole life is in this box, homie. You don't understand. There is no try again. Um, but uh, yeah, so I was I was I was incredibly fortunate to have a lot of amazing colleagues who supported me. And the cool thing was I was completing my boards, of course, in um, young adult uh, English language arts. But I had my entries read over by science writers because I kept right. going over the limit. Like I, you know, I love an <laughs> adjective and an adverb and my entries oh, were so long, Eddie. I was like, oh my God, I could never, there's no way, there's nothing I could cut. I would hand it to a science teacher and this man would take a black sharpie. Like just, my, yes, <laughs> yes. He was like, this is redundant. This is unnecessary. I'm like, no, you need that context. No, you do not. And he was like, Kim, do you have too much? And I'm like, yes. He's like, then you got to cut something. And he would carve through it with a knife and be like, this is the essential information. This you can reword, blah, 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 blah. And I know there's no way um, that I would have done it so early in my career had I not had that incredible network of support. No, that's awesome. So like, it sounds like having that team was, yes. very, was vital to Absolutely. your success. What was the most helpful coaching conversation or resource you received while you were going through the process? To, and it's going to sound really simple, but to answer the literal questions <laughs> and the literal prompts that you are being provided with, that this is not a dissertation, your transitions, this doesn't have to be the epic story of you as a teacher. 
answer the prompts that you are given, provide the documentation that they ask for, and trust that you're doing the work. And that was super helpful for me because, like I said, I loved an adjective and an adverb, yeah. and I thought you needed two paragraphs of context before we got to the thing. And they were like, no, Kim, give them the thing. So that was probably the most helpful to just, you know, better tune myself to what was being asked in the different components and give the reviewer what they're asking for. See that? So, so they got you, they got you right? <laughs> they did. They the did. They did. And now I'm in a position where I can offer that same help and feedback and and direction to other people, which is really cool. And it's why if anybody ever asks for support, I always offer it up, you know, even, even when my schedule is otherwise quite busy because people made that time for me. And it's really important for me to, to, to give back in that same way. So how did becoming an NBCT impact your career? Um, it, I mean, it is in, within my school district, um, particularly, it is a, a rite of passage of strong teachers. Um, it became a, a leading fact that I shared about myself when I was introducing myself to, to, to parents, especially as a very young educator, it was really critical. Um, I wanted my parents to know that their students were in good hands. And when you're, 26 or 27 and the parents are 45 and 46, <laughs> uh, you know, age is not on your side. And now there is experience at that point, but showing yourself as an equipped, as a thoughtful, as a reflective teacher who has been, you know, vetted and credentialed by uh, uh, an organization like the National Board was a really big deal. And, and in the sort of on the personal side, I will say it also did make me thoughtful and more intentional about the professional development opportunities that I took, like knowing that I would eventually renew, knowing what you know the national boards expects, what they're wanting to see from teacher leaders. It led me to perhaps diversify my professional development a bit more than I would have on my own. Okay. Okay. So you take initiative to have more culturally responsive lessons in your classroom. Yes. The big one for you is Holocaust pedagogy. It's something yes. we talked about earlier. What sparked your initial interest in the Holocaust? So when I first started, it was um, a, a required text that I had to teach in the first year that I taught it. I taught it as though it were any other text. You know, we're reading, we're plotting characters, we're, you know, we're looking at the advancement of events. We're talking about tone and mood and symbolism. And it it just struck me toward the end, I was reading a passage on my own that, and I knew, of course, I told my students, this is a memoir, but I had a sort of personal reckoning where I realized that this is the story of a people and a culture, and it deserves to be told in a way that humanizes big numbers, like 6 million people losing their lives or, you know, the number of countries um, that that the, the Nazi regime uh, overtook or the number of camps. Now, these are real people and, and their stories deserve to be remembered. And, and furthermore, as a woman of color, I thought about the stories of my culture. And if someone were somewhere teaching a, a novel about civil rights or American chattel slavery, I would want it to be more than a series of events in a timeline. I would want them to take the time and the effort to humanize a story, even though it's not their own. 
And I decided that I would do that with my teaching of the Holocaust. And over the last decade or more, I've, I've spent my time trying to do that and to grow in that and to grow in my abilities in that. So some would think of the Holocaust as more of a history topic. Mm -hmm. Seeing that you're an English teacher, how do you incorporate it into your lessons? Well, I don't, you can't tell any story without text. If it's history, if it's literature, um, I, I think whether it's a memoir or an article, there is a literary skill being applied. And with my teaching of the Holocaust, it fits into a broader year where we are looking at identity, we're looking at culture, we're looking at the interplay of, of people's cultures across time. Um, and, and the Holocaust is such a fruitful subject to look at so many aspects of identity and culture and oppression and systems of oppression. And in an ever diversifying world, I think it's critical that students be presented with these difficult um, but vital topics and that they're able to explore them and be led through them in a safe manner that helps them to build a world where never again can truly be the case, not only um, in instances of anti-Semitism or, or hatred against Jewish people or culture, but for the safety and the freedom of all peoples of all cultures. Um, I think the the Holocaust gives us um, a, a kind of safe way. Uh, uh, it's an issue that has been adjudicated um, pretty, you know, uni universally. <laughs> we have condemned this evil. And because we share this collective outrage, we're able to look at those systems of oppression. And then hopefully, at least my, my goal and what I give my students is that they begin to apply those lenses to the world in which they live. And they begin to confront injustice. They begin to confront uh, cultural oppression, racial oppression, gender oppression, um, because you know none of us are free until all of us are free. I love to hear it. So what are two or three lesser known links to the Holocaust that people usually miss? Um, I would say um, one of the questions my students ask me a lot is, you know, well, why didn't people just leave? And we begin to look at um, systems and requirements for immigration then and now. <laughs> and we begin to humanize a process that gets politicized a lot. And, you know, when my students are looking at what were the, the immigration requirements in, you know, the 1930s, 1939, when World War II officially begins, and then I show them the 2023 immigration requirements, we have a very honest conversation about how possible, how probable is it that people are actually able to go through these processes. We talk about what leads someone to become a refugee. Um, again, I think I mentioned a little bit earlier, we talk about those systems of oppression that we don't start at genocide. Um, and how do we see those systems revealing themselves in our day-to-day -day lives? And more importantly, how can we be upstanders instead of bystanders? How can we be active agents? Like in, exactly. Um, in, <laughs> in, changing, in changing the world we live in. Um, I make connections to everything from some of the eugenics that were practiced in um, in Nazi Germany and Nazi controlled areas to the eugenics program that took place in my own state um, where poor women and women of color were 
um, forcibly sterilized. We make very real and strong connections from this historical event to the world my kids are living in today. Oh, man. So do you have two or three recommended readings for people to try to get more? Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, night is the central text that I oh, teach. Man, I read student. that. In, I read that in school. It was. Um, exactly. And it stays with you. Um, the Pianist by Vladislav Shvilman, which is another survivor story. I teach my kids um, and and they love it. And it's a very different story of survival. Um, the story of Kitty Hart Moxon. Um, she was a female Holocaust survivor who survives Auschwitz along with her mother. And it's really important for me that my students get different kinds of perspectives from the same event. So those are those are three stories, um, three texts that I would absolutely recommend to anyone wanting to, to learn more, maybe dive in. Okay, I'm going to definitely have to read the other two. I remember reading Night in School and that that book, man. I think everyone um, would would benefit from reading all of those texts. And there's so many more, but you guys read <laughs> All right. So if you had to sell the teaching profession to someone looking to get into it in one to two minutes, what would you use as your elevator pitch? I would say every day I get the opportunity to hang out with amazing young people who are at a point in their lives where they are determining who they want to be and what they want to do. Um, they are every day confronting um, the issues and the crises of our world, but they are not daunted by it. In fact, they are hopeful of the change they can make. And as an educational leader, you have the opportunity to empower them to make those changes, to help them meet their potential, whatever it might be. If they want to go into business, if they want to go into entertainment, if they want to be a writer or a doctor or a lawyer, the little bit that you give them every day uh, in your classroom gets them one step closer to that. And you become a magnifier of their gifts and talents, and you become a small part of whatever amazing things they go on to do. There's nothing better than that. There's nothing better than knowing you help someone be a little bit better today. And teachers are uniquely positioned to, to do that. And it is one of the greatest gifts and joys and privileges of my life to know that I'm a part of my students' future story. And someday I'm going to see them go on to do great and incredible things. I'm going to eat in their restaurants. I'm going to get my hair cut in their salons. I'm going to see them take public office and know that, you know, that that year with Ms. Jones in English, you know, mm. when they write their acceptance speech or they're describing something on their website and they appropriately place a comma. I had a part to do with that. <laughs> Oh man, you guys make this pitch. This pitch gets harder and harder to keep myself out of the classroom <laughs> every year. I'm like, man, all right, I gotta get some things together. <laughs> all right, so who is your favorite fictional TV movie, TV or movie teacher? Ooh, um, I'm gonna go. Oh, okay. Um, so it's a little, it's a little unconventional, but I'm gonna say Nettie in The Color Purple, who teaches her sister Celie how to read okay. uh, using objects in, in the house. Like my education started on the front porch uh, of, uh, of a double wide trailer in a, in a mill town. And my mom had chalk 
and we started with the alphabet on the front porch um, <laughs> playing school. And she was my first teacher. So I would absolutely say Nettie because she was unlocking the world for the person she loved most in the world through literacy. Okay. Okay. So did you see they're making, they're doing a remake? The- <laughs> Nettie, please talk to you. <laughs> absolutely. Oh my gosh. Like that's on my Christmas list. I've already talked to my husband about going to see that movie. He does not do musicals. <laughs> I was like, well, guess what, Mr. Man? You're going to do this one because we are going to be in the house to see the color purple. All right, opening day. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. So what are three restaurants folks should try a visit in Chapel Hill? Um, so many good places. So many good places. My top three would probably be Mediterranean Deli, which is this incredible Mediterranean market. They have all kinds of, of incredible uh, Mediterranean dishes. I would say Armadillo Grill, which is actually in Carborough, but those two cities are right next to each other. Uh, it's a local fave. And the third, I would probably go with a local wing spot I like a lot called I Heavenly Buffaloes. So good. So, <laughs> so good. Okay. Okay. So we have a feature on the podcast called The Shoulder Tap. When you give a tap on the shoulder to an educator and let them know they're ready to become national board certified on here. You'll give them a quick shout out and we'll encourage them on social media to go through the process. You said to go through the process. So on here. Oh, well, so who are you shoulder tapping? I am shoulder tapping um, a colleague from the science department. Um, we work together in the AVID program and her name is Miss Katie Andres. She is an exceptional educator. She is an instructional leader, and like I said, she does the work of a national board professional uh, of a national board certified teacher, um, and she absolutely should go through the process. And she's a science teacher, so she mo- yes. you know she won't have the writing over. Exactly, exactly, exactly. She will write very succinctly and probably have a much easier time of it than I did. All <laughs> right. So, where can everyone find you on social media? You can follow me on Instagram or reach me via email at Kim Jones Teaches. Um, and for email, that's Kim Jones Teaches at Gmail. Awesome. Awesome. Kim Jones, thank you so much for coming on. You're so welcome, Eddie. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. Such a fun conversation with Kimberly Jones. I'll leave links to the books in the show notes for listeners to show off in their classroom. Now, as promised, Here's how you can participate in the I Am an NBCT campaign. You'll record a video and give your name and title, then answer the following questions. What inspired you to become an NBCT? What was your journey like and how long did it take you to certify? And then provide a few words of encouragement for candidates currently going through the process. Once the video has been made, post it on social media using the hashtag I Am an NBCT and tag us at NBPTS on Twitter or Instagram. We look forward to seeing all your videos. Instructions will be linked in the show notes as well. Now let me say thank you one more time to Kimberly Jones for chatting with me and thank you for listening to National Board Conversations. Be sure to follow us on social media for all National Board related updates and we'll see you next time.